Welcome to Lawyerly. I'm your host, Sean Kennedy. As you may have heard, last week, the House of Representatives passed a bill decriminalizing marijuana. Well, my guest on today's episode, Nicole Stanton, has a front row seat for these issues as the lead lawyer for a large cannabis company. Nicole talks about what it's like working in an industry that up until now has been legal in some states, but remains illegal at the federal level. And we also got to talk about a whole other side of her life that led to the experience of potty training her daughter with a security detail. Plus, don't miss some free advice about what not to do if you want Nicole's business. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Lawyerly. My guest today is Nicole Stanton, who is Vice President and General Counsel at Harvest Health and Recreation. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you very much, Sean. It's great to be here. So tell me about what Harvest does. Well, Harvest is one of the largest multi-state operators in the United States. And by multi-state operator, it's pretty obvious what that means. But in case anyone wants to know, we operate uh, cannabis, either dispensaries or cultivations or manufacturing outlets in various different states throughout the country. So you grow, you actually have grow facilities and, yeah. and actually sell it on the, on the back end too. We do. I mean, it's probably a better thing to say that we are a vertically integrated multi-state operator. And so by vertically integrated, it means exactly what you're talking about. We grow it, we manufacture it into different products, and then we sell it in retail outlets in that state. Now, I imagine that's going to be a fairly exotic concept for a lot of people listening that, that <laughs> aren't familiar with the industry. The um, what? You know, give me a sense of like what the industry is like at this point, because I know a lot has changed over the last five years. Yeah, and I mean, I, I will say this. So I started at Harvest in June of 2019, and it, it would have been considered an exotic thing for me at that time. <laughs> I really didn't have any exposure to the industry before I started at Harvest. And so, you know, I completely understand that. But when you talk about the industry five years ago, it's virtually unrecognizable from what it was five years ago to what it is today. I mean, we obviously just went through a, a very robust election cycle. Mm -hmm. And even within that election cycle, there were multiple states, I think six states that had different cannabis related efforts on the ballot, including Harvest's home state of Arizona, mm -hmm. which now has the voters overwhelmingly voted to legalize cannabis in the state of Arizona. 60% to 40% was the margin of victory there. Oh, wow. Were you guys involved at all in the in that effort in Arizona? Yeah, our CEO really took a leadership effort in that legalization effort. It was something that obviously helps us economically, but more than that, the criminal justice reform aspect of the initiative, which essentially expunged uh, convictions for really mm -hmm. what amounts to petty cannabis crimes, was really important to him. So he's a former lawyer himself. Um, just mm. interesting, probably for your listeners. Yeah. And so that aspect of the initiative was something very near and dear to his heart. So is it a, you know, how, how widespread now is legalization among the states? I knew you were going to ask me a numbers question. Um, <laughs> you don't, you don't need you know, the actual number. <laughs> <laughs> as you know, lawyers are not good at numbers. But, yeah. um, you know, it, it, it's, I consider it kind of like a domino effect. State by state by state, New Jersey um, passed some progressive cannabis uh, legalization measures. Arizona obviously did. And so you're just kind of seeing it state by state. You have Colorado, California, um, I guess Washington, Oregon, I know, passed some very progressive, not just, not cannabis laws, but I think Oregon was the one related to um, hallucinogenic mushrooms and mm -hmm. other other drugs. And so I think, from, from my perspective, it's a matter of time before something on the federal level needs to happen. Mm -hmm. Because right now, and this, you know, is something that, that your, your listeners will understand, 
is that we really have to deal as lawyers at Harvest with such a patchwork of regulations. The regulations are different in every single state. And even within a state, we're regulated sometimes by two different bodies um, that come at cannabis with a different mindset. So for example, in New Jersey, their medical cannabis program, it was really composed of people that came from the gaming industry in Atlantic City. They brought people, you know, in the, in the regulatory agency from that mindset. And then you have other states where the regulatory body is composed of people that came from a health background. So it'll be a Department of Health that's regulating us. And so you can see where, you know, mm-hmm. even the words on the page are interpreted with a different mindset. So I do think at some point it's ripe for federal legislation to step in and, and really create some consistency mm-hmm. in the way that we're regulated. Where do you think that that effort stands at this point? Is Are we on the verge of something at the federal level, do you think? Yeah, I really do. I mean, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, I know, has been outspoken in her support of some sort of regu- uh, federal regulatory solution. I think that, you know, there's pending legislation in the House on the Safe Banking Act and, you know, to, to really open the industry wide up for mm-hmm. uh, federal federal regulation and, you know, allowing us access to banks just like any other business has. Right now, if you want to have a cannabis license, open a dispensary. It's not like you can go to Bank of America and say, I want a small business loan like you would if you wanted to open a cookie store. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we have to raise capital in much different ways than that. So how does that work at a, when you have the a patchwork of state you know, regulations and, and things that, that govern what you do within a state, but then you have mm-hmm. the federal laws that don't match up with the state laws necessarily, you know, and, and so I remember reading, you know, a while back about, uh, cannabis operations in California after, uh, after it was legalized here in 2016 that, uh, that had problems. They couldn't even have a bank account, right. you know, or, or, or the like, I mean, <laughs> really basic things for a business yeah. um, well, because and, and of I think federal it's... influence. Yeah, and I mean, you brought up bank accounts, and, and I will just give you very specific examples of how ridiculous, I, I think it's ridiculous, um, those prohibitions are. So, for example, when my husband and I went to refinance the house that I'm sitting in um, earlier this year to take advantage of interest rates, mm-hmm. um, the bank would, and it was a larger bank, when, a name that you would recognize would not even allow me to be on the loan because my pro- the proceeds that I'm paying my you know my 50% is coming from in what they view to be an illegal industry and so since they're a federally regulated oh, wow. bank they would not allow me to be part of the loan. I hired a lawyer from another state who was literally in the moving truck moving here had bought a house and he gets a call from the bank again another large bank you would recognize the name you know they said ring ring uh this is your bank we're so sorry we can't fund your your loan because we just found out you work for a cannabis company so he and his wife had to scramble find we helped them find a different lending source um to to fund the loan but obviously it was a higher interest rate but that's how extreme the the large federally regulated banks take that prohibition wow i mean how does that work out i mean are you guys just dealing in piles of cash or are you, you know, it, is it bitcoin it, or <laughs> <laughs> you know it is still very much a cash business hmm. um we do have atms at our facilities at all of our facilities because you know they are cash transactions mm-hmm. but the state chartered banks um, we have found hospitable to cannabis okay. banking. So there are state operated banks that, that are friendly to us and are more than happy to take our money. Sure. Well, so how does that work <laughs> with then, you know, you said you're a multi-state operator. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
do you have to grow it in the state where you sell it or are you, uh, exactly. you can't take it across state lines? Absolutely. You are exactly right. Um, there is no transport from state to state of cannabis. So, mm-hmm. you know, which of course presents business challenges because you may have an oversupply in one state and not have enough in another state and there's nothing, your hands are tied. You can't just load up a truck and take your inventory across state lines. It just doesn't work like that. And if you know anything about um, cannabis, you know that, you know, there is a fairly long growing cycle from, you know, group to group to group. And so, you know, it just, it doesn't, you have to, you have, there's a lot of planning involved in this process. And if you have a crop failure or something like that could be very devastating Mm -hmm. to your operations. Man, I can't think of another example (laughs) Um, of, of something like this, because it's almost, you know, it's schizophrenic because at the Mm -hmm. state level, you're, you're a business like any other, you have product, you're, you know, you're doing business legally and the federal level, you're like Tony Montana. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, very much so. And, and I think it also leads to these, I don't know what to call them exactly. Um, sort of these pretextual activities that go on. Like you you could never take a cannabis plant, put it in a truck or on an airplane and transport it from Arizona to Florida. Mm -hmm. But you could take a package of seeds from a Mm. plant and take the seeds Mm. from Arizona to Florida. Um, So, you know, there's, there's, of course, rules like that. It has to do with the level of THC that's contained in whatever it is that that you're transporting. So, um, but, you know, just silly, I guess I would consider them kind of silly. Mm -hmm. Like, what's the difference between a seed and a a leaf? Mm -hmm. But (laughs) the law doesn't, the law doesn't perceive it that way. Right. Uh, I've also seen some indications, at least, that, you know, that, putting aside sort of the federal state distinction, even within Mm -hmm. states, there's a big distinction between, you know, various localities that you're, that you're operating. Some are very friendly, some are Mm -hmm. really not friendly. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think that even within cities themselves in certain parts of town, you know, it might be okay to have a dispensary in a certain part of town Mm-hmm. but maybe not in another part of town. Like it's, it's unacceptable. But I do think, you know, what, what the way that I view it is that when people have a personal experience with cannabis, and, and I was just looking at something this morning, a, an email that I'd received from one of our customers who, who happened to know me personally. She was going through chemotherapy, was very ill with that, had never used cannabis before. Her doctor said, hey, go and, you know, get some cannabis and it will make you feel better and help with your nausea. And so she shot me an email about how supportive our employees were in the store, hmm. helping her figure out what would be best for what she needed um, the remedy for. And uh, she was very grateful for that. And so that to me is when the law kind of follows that change of hearts and minds. And I think that hearts and minds change when people have a personal experience, a child with epilepsy, you know, cannabis has shown um, in some, you know, some people claim that it's shown to help with epileptic seizures. And certainly, as I mentioned, cancer patients. And so the more people that have that exposure, the more that, you know, it sort of starts a whisper campaign or a buzz that, mm-hmm. hey, you know, this is not this is not college students trying to get high. This really has uh, beneficial assistance to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does this play out in in a state after the state legalizes marijuana, let's say? So in California, <laughs> I think everybody expected in 2016, it was just going to be everywhere. And for a long time, from my perception, at least it, it was not, it wasn't except for a few places, you know, you, Mm -hmm. you drive out to Palm Springs and every billboard along the way is advertising (laughs) a dispensary or something like that. Uh, but you would, but it's practically invisible, um, in large, you know, large Mm -hmm. swaths of, of the state. 
Yeah, I mean, I think Arizona is, it just passed, of course, a few weeks ago. And so now the Arizona Department of Health Services is going through the rulemaking that will put into action the Mm -hmm. will of the voters. But the way that I sort of see it playing out is you'll have a dispensary. Both types of patients will still go through the front door. And by both types of patients, I mean patients who are there for recreational use without a medical card. But you still will have medical patients that are entering through the front door. And the reason why that distinction is important is because at least in Arizona, and I can't speak to California, I think it's the same way. If you have a medical card, you don't pay the same tax that Mm. a recreational user would pay. So in Arizona, it's going to be a 16% tax on your purchase, which goes to community colleges, public safety, and and highways. And so if it's still going to be beneficial for you to have a medical card because you can then, if you're using it for medical purposes, you can avoid the tax. Um, And also... You know, if you're coming through the front door to buy it recreationally, there's still going to be limits on the amount that you can buy, and those allotments will be tracked from person mm-hmm. to person. So, you know, that's very similar between medical and a recreational customer. But um, it's, I think, the look and the feel of the stores will be the same patient, you know, patient versus customer experience. We're not really anticipating changing much. Unless, unless we have to, we'll do it if the regulator tells us mm-hmm. to, but not anticipating much of a change for the experience in the store. You still have people coming in and needing advice on the, you know, the type of experience that they'll get from using that particular strain of cannabis. Sure. What's it, what's it like uh, competing with essentially a black market, a, a truly <laughs> illegal trade in in the thing that you're selling yeah i mean i think obviously i wish that that didn't exist but as long as you're from my perspective as long as you're dealing with something that that is still you know at least when you buy it i'm going to say legally on a state Mm -hmm. on a state level um there's always going to be someone out there who's trying to undercut you and and i think that happens with all products, right? Sure. I mean, yeah. you see yeah. people, if there's a, the Super Bowl's in town, you see people on the side of the street selling the knockoff t-shirts. I mean, there's mm-hmm. always going to be somebody who wants to sell it for less than you're charging. But I think that is where, you know, Arizona just enacted testing requirements for cannabis. And so it depends on the type of of buyer or user of the products. I think that as it becomes more mainstream, as, as it becomes legalized in, in a lot of states, I do think that you will start to appeal to the soccer mom who, instead of a mm-hmm. glass of wine that has a bunch of calories in it, turns to some mm-hmm. edible gummies to uh, take the edge off of dealing with the kiddos. And so, you know, someone like that, I think, is way more likely to want a safe, um, tested product that is not purchased on the side of the road or, you know, behind Mm -hmm. the 7-Eleven. Yeah. Is that, do you think that's the sort of natural life cycle of this, that it goes from when, when it gets, let's say it gets legalized at the federal level, does the black market kind of dry up and it becomes more of a gray market, people getting out, trying to get around the taxes and the regulations, I, I don't think legalization is is a panacea to, to end the black market. Because as, mm. as I said, I, I do think that you're always going to have that crew out there that wants to buy something cheaper. And, and there'll be a customer base for that no matter what. Sure. So I'm, I'm curious. I had, uh, a, a, years back, I represented a, a company that was, um, that you would know, it's a a, an energy drink company. Mm-hmm. And when I would go to their offices, they mm-hmm. had a, a cooler in every, every office. They had one out in the, in the lobby. You had, you know, you could get an energy drink literally everywhere in the whole building. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Is that what you guys have in your your uh, conference rooms? Do you have edibles, you know, sort of served up there? You know, no, what, what's we that? do not. <laughs> what's that like? No, I mean, again, the it's not the same as an energy drink. It's mm-hmm. still, you know, from state to state, a highly regulated um, product. And so you can't, first of all, a person sure. who wants us to sell something would have to figure out how to get it again into the state if it contained THC. It's not like you can just jump on the plane with your bag of gummies. Um, <laughs> that's not going to fly. And so, no, I mean, it, it. I know that it sounds fun and fanciful like that, but with all the restrictions on state travel and then the amount that one person is supposed to have in their possession and inventory control... There's so much regulation around it for a company like us that we're not, you know, spilling out the, the jar of gummies <laughs> on the conference room table. No. Uh, all right. Mock there, up, go my, there go my, uh, know, my imaginations. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, at least not at Harvest. We don't do that. Right. Uh, so... At what what stage do you think a company like Harvest is in then? Because, you know, the industry seems, you know, like it's it really is still in a nascent mm-hmm. kind of stage. You know, what about what about Harvest specifically? Yeah, I mean I think I think you're correct. The industry still is in a very nascent stage because I think, you know, a year ago everybody was really you know, the larger companies was really flush with cash. There was a lot of capital influx into Mm -hmm. cannabis companies. I think Harvest and other companies were not unique, kind of stumbled out of the gates trying to figure out um, what, how this, what's the best way to run this business? Because I think if you look at Harvest's maturation, you will notice that a year ago, probably 18 months now, more so like 18 months to two years, was really in kind of this wild west on a national level land grab where mm-hmm. we were gobbling up licenses all over the country and attempting to have the widest footprint possible. I think over the last 18 months, at least we have come to learn about ourselves, and I think this is probably true for other cannabis companies that it's not about your width. It is really about your depth. So if you look at Harvest's growth um, over the last 12 months, especially even just was it Monday of this week, we announced the divestiture of our stores and cultivation in Arkansas. We had a presence in Arkansas. And you, you saw us get rid of that because we're focusing on core markets Arizona, Florida, Pennsylvania, and Maryland, because we've realized it, it's expensive to create a cultivation site and to grow it out and to create the kind of capacity that you need to serve a state. And mm-hmm. so it's better to invest your resources in one state and just go as deep as you possibly can, at least for us, than to be a sprinkling and a smattering all over the country. So you'll, if you look at our, you know, history over the last twelve months, you'll see that that's exactly the direction that we're going. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about growing facilities in a given state, if you just look at California, um, is it still largely concentrated in sort of the north, the northern part of the state? It has the what was illegal cultivation just turned, you know, they, the legal cultivators have come in and taken over that, that area or are there other, has it spread kind of to typical, more typical kind of agricultural areas as well? I mean, I can less speak to California because we only have a dispensary presence in California, Okay, but you know, I can talk about Arizona, which is that, we have cultivation facilities both in northern Arizona. We have an outdoor uh, grow there. And then we also have a, a grow facility in the middle of Phoenix. Um, it's in a building. And if you drove by, you'd probably <laughs> never know that so it was indoor. in there. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. And I think from a real estate perspective, I mean, real estate law and real estate activities have such an important role to play in cannabis because Mm. you can't just plop 
a cultivation site or a dispensary even down wherever you want to put it. Um, there's so many restrictions on how close we can be to a church, how close we can mm-hmm. be to a school, um, what type of activity, you know, all the normal things mm-hmm. that would be associated with with a manufacturing facility, then you layer upon it all of the cannabis-specific mm-hmm. prohibitions. It's oftentimes finding the right real estate is is like, it's like Goldilocks and <laughs> finding that perfect chair where... That is the one place in the city that right. you can put it. And so when a license comes up for to be applied for in a location, sometimes the you know, getting out first and finding that piece of real estate where that license can go is such mm. a critical skill to have that I really just can't overstate it. That is a job we have one person that just does that. Hmm. Really, for us and nothing else is finding the right location for our facilities, and because it is, it is really like finding, you know, just that right piece of the puzzle. Sure. Yeah. Do you have? I imagine that you have to have a fair amount of security around those facilities. Oh yeah. Because people want to. <laughs> people want your product. <laughs> yeah. So I'll tell you an interesting story about that. So, in here in Phoenix. Earlier this year, there was a very unfortunate fire at the Arizona Democratic Party headquarters, and mm. it was concluded pretty early on that it was arson and bur- you know burned. It was actually Maricopa County uh, Democratic Party was in the building, and it burned their part of the building up completely, mm. making it unusable. And everyone, I think, thought that it was politically motivated. And I said to my husband, I was like, they're going to catch that person very quickly and he was like, why, why do you say that? And I said, because they're next door to a dispensary, a cannabis <laughs> dispensary. And it's because, you know, within our facilities and, and any other operator, the states require you to have 24 mm-hmm. 7, virtually 24 7 camera footage at every single angle. There are no spots that are not mm-hmm. going to be recorded. And so the parking lot, uh, you know, we don't do the restrooms, but pretty much every other place is recording that activity that is going on. So I knew I was like, if someone (laughs) committed arson in that building, like they will find that person. And of course they did. I don't know Mm -hmm. if my theory was correct, but, um, the number of cameras that we have to have is, is phenomenal. And the technology that's, that's behind it, Um, some locations where we are, and I know this is the case for other cannabis operators, warrant the need for live security guards to be present because again, you're dealing with a lot of cash. You're dealing with products that some of which are, you know, depending on the strain can be more expensive. And so sometimes security is necessary. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you, you joined Harvest last year. Mm-hmm. In, in June. So before that, you were in private practice at a big firm. Right. Uh, what was it like? And and I think a pretty conservative big firm, you know, among <laughs> maybe others. But uh, what was it like to sort of make that move? Because you were there a long time. I was, yeah. I was really, I spent 18 years in private practice at that firm, and I had managed its Phoenix office Mm-hmm. where I oversaw about 100 lawyers and 75 staff people. Um, I, I enjoyed my time in private practice. I really loved my clients. But it was by, I would say by the end of 2018, I had really made up my mind that I was going to do something else. I didn't know what that was going to be, but I had... I had done a jury trial for the first time in my career after, I guess it took me 17 (laughs) years to get into a courtroom, Um, but we had a case that went to trial for a few weeks and we won. And then I was stepping down from managing the office. I had managed it for five years and I had a really good book of business that I had developed. And I kind of looked around at the end of 2018 and said, is this, you know, like this seems to be kind of as good as it's going to get. At a big firm, and I decided that I wanted to explore some other opportunities. Hmm. The first thing I started to explore was a, a career in an, at a nonprofit. Um, I ended up making it down to the final two, 
and was not chosen. And a friend of mine called me two days after that and said, would you be interested in being GC of a company? And I was like, it would really depend on the company because I never really, <laughs> I never really thought about that before. Hmm. But I obviously came and met our CEO, and given that he has a legal background, and I think he really appreciates the value that the legal department brings to the table. That was really important to me, and it was also important to me. I just didn't want to go and kind of push paper. I really mm-hmm. find what Harvest is doing exciting, and fit, you know, filled with opportunity. And so, you know, it mattered to me what that in-house experience was going to look like. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, in-house in this industry, you know, is probably a really critical role. I mean, I, I think it is, but, um, and I think the company does too. I, I don't mm-hmm. mean to suggest that they don't. I, I think that it is important. It is, you know, the law always, not always, but there's so many parts of the law that do change. The law usually Mm -hmm. doesn't remain static. And so I think that that, this industry is that concept on steroids. To say that it is a Mm. fast-moving industry is, you know, it's a complete understatement. Mm. And just like we were talking earlier about Arizona going recreational and legalizing cannabis... I mean, what we are doing right now and what California went through in 2016 and other states, you know, Colorado have gone through, like it's never been done before. And Mm -hmm. so it's really exciting to be able to do something for the first time, to put, you know, to have some say in what that looks like, to be part of of building something from from the ground up and, you know, really trying to get it right. And so that's what I really love about Harvest in, and the work that we do is that oftentimes what we're doing is like an issue of first impression. It's just mm-hmm. it's never happened before. And, and I really like that, you know, sort of unique quality of what we do here. Sure. I mean, you guys are true trailblazers in that sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it also, and, and quite honestly, sometimes I have to pinch myself that I'm actually here because as you mentioned... I came from a very, you know, old established firm and, you know, part of the reason I was there is that I do have this very risk averse personality. (laughs) And so I think that, you know, sort of my entrepreneurial and my, my adventurous side has come out of the closet and Mm -hmm. has been able to, you know, fully expand and, and thrive in this environment because I, you know, it is kind of scary sometimes because you're like, there's really no rule on this. There's, <laughs> there's right. no precedent to look at. <laughs> and, and the reason I think I like that is that I've always been complimented on my ability to use good judgment. Hmm. And sometimes when you have to make a call about something here, there isn't a cookie cutter application to apply. You just have to use good judgment and, and know that you're going to have to defend that down the road if someone calls you on it. And so I sort of, mm-hmm. that's, I think that's kind of why I like it. Well, I certainly understand that the whole yeah. sort of latent <laughs> entrepreneurial bent. Um, yeah. Cause law firms don't, don't lend themselves to that. No, they sure. don't. I mean, and, and you know, having been at a law firm that long and I have friends at law firms, obviously I think it can be a very stifling experience for some. And I know, you know, mm-hmm. countless lawyers that are unhappy in firms and they want to get out, they, you know, they're, they're, they become accustomed to the, the lifestyle and the money and accoutrements mm-hmm. associated with it. And, you know, luckily I had the ability to, you know, break out of that, that mold, I guess. Yeah. It's the old, the old golden handcuff <laughs> mantra, right? The, yeah. Uh, yeah. Not many really people, is. not many people would would willingly walk away from mm-hmm. a significant book of business and yeah. a comfortable lifestyle, comfortable sort of work habit mm-hmm. uh, into something unknown and just for the sake of, I need a new challenge. So right. I, I think that says something. Yeah, yeah. It, it might be kind of dumb, I'm, but, I, you know, some people <laughs> might view that as really risky. But 
Uh, and, you know, like I said, I, sometimes I'm like, wow, like I really, on a personal level, can't believe that I did that. Mm-hmm. But so many people have been very su- supportive of, you know, the example that I have shown to people that, you know, you really can make that leap and you can do mm-hmm. it in a very bold way. So, you know, hopefully I've inspired somebody out there at some point in time. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure you have. Uh, all right, we're going to take a quick break and oh. we're going to come back and talk about another pretty interesting aspect of Nicole's life that I think you'll like. Today's show is brought to you by eDepose, the electronic exhibit solution for depositions. With eDepose, attorneys can use exhibits during remote depositions just like they do during in-person depositions. The best part? You don't have to learn a whole new process. Just mark, introduce, and distribute personal copies of exhibits to all participants in real time the same way you always have. Learn more at edepose.com. And now, back to the show. All right, so in addition to your day job, you've been pretty involved in politics, too. So tell us a little bit about that. (laughs) Yeah, so I... You know, sometimes I will say this, I feel like Forrest Gump sometimes, if you remember that movie, like he ends up in very prominent scenes in history. And sometimes I feel that way because I didn't set out really to be in politics. I just happened to marry someone who Mm. um, was just starting his career in politics. My husband uh, was a member of the Phoenix City Council when I met him. Um, And then he became mayor of the city of Phoenix in 2012. Phoenix, of course, is the fifth largest city in the country. I don't know Mm -hmm. if your listeners know that, but it was a big job. And I was coined the title of First Lady of Phoenix (laughs) with the acronym of FLOP. So I was the flop (laughs) and he was the mop. And uh, it was a a really delightful experience. I decided early on that I would take on an issue that was important to me, as for, as most first ladies do. And mm-hmm. so I took on the issue of bullying, which then really catapulted into um, childhood trauma in general. And so I've worked on that as an issue statewide since Greg was mayor. Um, oh, wow. He was termed out as mayor, and so he ran for Congress in 2018. And so he just was reelected to his second term in Congress. So he's actually flying back from DC right now. That's, that's pretty big. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, you know, I'm one of those people that really has seen firsthand how the good things that government can do. Mm -hmm. I'm obviously not an anti-government person. And I, I think that especially at a local level, like mayor, you really see the individual impact that it can make on neighborhoods and communities and, and, you know, within your state. So, um, Mm -hmm. it was a very positive experience in our lives. So what was it like, or what has it been like? You've gone through two, I guess, congressional campaigns. Um, and what's that, what's that like? Um, well, collectively, my husband and I have been through seven campaigns together. Oh, wow. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we like campaigning. I actually think it's a lot of fun. It wasn't mm. so much fun this year or this cycle because of the pandemic. It mm. really changed the complexion of a campaign because we like to go door to door. We like to meet people. You get the best stories when you go out and really do meet the people that you represent. But um I I will say this about it, and I don't think this, I can't attribute this to the pandemic. I I, I will say I do think that politics has become more ugly and divisive Mm. than, you've obviously heard that. I'm not telling Mm. you anything you haven't, or your listeners haven't heard. Yeah, Yeah, shocking. (laughs) But I can tell you firsthand that it is painfully divisive and and cruel Mm. and mean-spirited. And I've, I've said this to people that, you know, my husband could put out a tweet or a social media post on cure, finding a cure for cancer, 
and there would be negative comments in there. Like, why are you mm-hmm. taking credit for that? Um, mm-hmm. Or I'm sure you overspent on doing that. There would be some negativity associated with it. And because he happens to have a, a D next to his name. Mm-hmm. And so I really, I, I don't know how we get back to that place. I don't feel like it has always been this way. And I, you know, I'm sort of forlorn about it because I don't, I don't really see a path of getting back there. Mm -hmm. And I really don't like the direction that we would, we would go if we can't reinstate some sort of commonality between differing viewpoints. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly a low point in my lifetime. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I would tend to agree with you. And, you know, as, as mayor, and I think this is why I'm probably even more sensitive to it. When you're the mayor of a city and, and watching Greg lead during that time, he didn't care who he worked with to get things done. You, hmm. he, There were people on the city council that were Democrats, that were Republicans. Um, he really worked with a wide array of people and accomplished a lot of great things. And so that's that's the government that I know and love. It's not this one that, you know, looks at your label and then decides whether you're worthwhile or not. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I, I, that's so destructive and, and you don't get anything done. You just can't. Do you find yourself sort of living your life a bit in the spotlight then as, as, you know, spouse of a, of a congressman? You know, it's interesting. Um, you might think that spouse of a congressman is a glamorous gig. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can disabuse anyone of that uh, of that notion. You know, my husband's gone three weeks out of the month. So mm. it's, you know, back and forth. For him, I know it's arduous, fi- a five-hour plane trip uh, twice a week to get back and forth. But we have kids here in school. And mm-hmm. so sort of traipsing back and forth for me is just not really an option. And, you know, you have to maintain two residences um, that that you have to pay for. So (laughs) (laughs) I think that, you know, people don't understand that aspect of it. There's just, there's a lot of, of small sacrifices that you have to make for us. It is worth it. It's such an honor to, for him to be able to serve when he was mayor, it was definitely more, he was definitely much more in the spotlight because you do have that bully pulpit. Right now, he's one of 435, I guess, members of Congress. Mm-hmm. When he was mayor, there was one of him and eight council people that he worked with. Um, and he did have a security detail. And so, you know, you got the guys with the earbuds. <laughs> and so you just like, I found that particular time to be, you know, there is a, there is a weight on you because everywhere you go, including the grocery store, you know, people are like, Oh, you know, there they are. Um, (laughs) so, (laughs) you know, there's the flop and the mop and our kids were very young. So, you know, my daughter potty trained with a security detail, you know, in tow. And so it's those kind of little things. I mean, that was just our life. He was a very young mayor and we had a very young family. So you know, it was a great experience, but um, sort of, sort of a unique one that I'm gra- sure. I'm very grateful for it. For sure. Is there? Do you feel any sort of pressure from either outside, you know, kind of the opposite side of the fence politically, or people within your your own circles that um, you know, about your your move to a cannabis company, even. You know, I was a little bit nervous about that, I will say. Um, not because I care as much what people think, because mm-hmm. if I think it's the right move for me, I'm going to do it no matter what. But less, more so I was concerned about how it might impact, you know, how people feel about Greg. I would never mm-hmm. want my career to hurt his or his, you know, I know he would never want his to hurt mine. And so I think... Seeing the overwhelming support that cannabis had in Arizona on the ballot, 60% to 40%, made me feel better about that. Mm -hmm. Um, And my husband won his election by one percentage point more than (laughs) he did two years ago. So I don't think Mm -hmm. it hurt him either. And this was not a great year, despite what everyone thinks. It was not a great year for Democrats in the House. Um, They lost seats. Mm-hmm. And so I feel pretty good about that. Um, 
because I just, I don't think it has the same stigma that it used to. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'd like to think that hopefully I'm on the, that we are on the cutting edge of, again, changing hearts and minds with people who will have that personal experience. You know, I'm not suggesting I want people to get sick and have to use our products to make themselves feel better. But I do think that it will become more prolific and, and people will have that personal experience. So how's the COVID-19 crisis, you know, affected you guys? Well, you know, cannabis is considered in most states uh, as an essential business because in most states it is medical cannabis. Sure. And so throughout the various shutdowns, harvest has remained open with obviously heightened protocols, cleaning protocols, safety protocols, curbside pickup, just like any other retailer. But mm-hmm. unlike, you know, again, unlike some businesses, we we were able to stay open during all of the shutdowns. And so, you know, it really didn't affect us. If anything, during that first shutdown period, people were hoarding cannabis like they were toilet paper because <laughs> nobody really knew what was going to happen. They were like, oh, no, is my dispensary going to be shut down? So we did see a slight uptick in sure. <laughs> sales because I do think people were worried that they would not have access to it. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. <laughs> so yeah. is your, you know, in your day-to-day, are you, um, what's your in-house kind of team look like? Yes. Yeah, so our in-house team has uh, three, what I'm going to call M&A lawyers, but each of them kind of do something different. One of them has an expertise in financing. So does our, you know, capital raising or debt financing, whatever it happens to be. Um, one of them kind of is a pure M&A lawyer. And then the third of the three has M&A or excuse me, some securities experience We Mm -hmm. did just hire a lawyer who has U.S. securities experience because on November 5th, we filed to become registered in the United States with the SEC. Mm. Um, Right now, we are registered in Canada, and you can buy our securities on the Canadian Stock Exchange. You can also buy them on the OTC, the -the Mm over-the-counter in the United States. Um, But for, you know, not an archaic securities reason, but a securities law reason, um, we lost what is called foreign private issuer status. And so we had to become registered in the United States. Um, It doesn't mean we'll be able to sell our stock on the New York Stock Exchange. There are no cannabis companies there. Mm -hmm. But um, we did have to become registered in the U.S. So I did have to hire a U.S. securities lawyer. I then, probably not to your surprise, because of what I talked about with real estate, have an in-house real estate lawyer, mm-hmm. and I have an in-house uh, kind of a general corporate lawyer who reviews on the contracts, NDAs, um, keeps up with our corporate organizational chart and all of that, and then I have a labor and employment lawyer who works for mm-hmm. Harvest. So it's a it's a good-sized team, six people on the team, and then myself, so there's seven of us all together. And then we have a legal assistant that assists us as well. So it's a talented group of people. I'm really lucky. That is a good-sized group. Uh, yeah. How big is Harvest at this point? Oh, gosh. Um, probably about 900 to 1,000 employees, I would say, okay. across, the, across the country, maybe 11 states. Um, so in your role as, as GC, um, are you involved with, uh, making decisions on who to, who to hire the law firms, the outside firms? Yes, I am. Um, that is, that is a key part of my, of my job is, is deciding who we hire. Uh, when I got to harvest in June of 2019, they were utilizing at least 80 law firms, 80 different law firms. Which 80s a lot. 80s a lot. Um, it was hard to manage, hard to track. Um, I when I got there, you know, the company had just become public in November of 2018, so it only been public about six months, and mm. was going through this just major growth spurt. 
And at that particular time, pretty much anybody could pick up the phone and call a lawyer or hire a law firm. (laughs) And so I immediately put a stop to that. And now all of that gets, you know, filtered through me. So I make the decisions about who we use and who we don't and what we use them for. Yeah, that makes sense. What what goes into your decision on, on who to hire? You know, obviously we're in a bunch of different states, so they've got to have state experience. Um, but coming from a big firm and having to get clients of my own and, you know, while I was at, at the firm that I was at, diversity was very important to me. It's important to me personally. It was important to me when we were hiring lawyers at the firm And so I really do look for lawyers and law firms who, you know, hold the same values that I do. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I first started at Harvest, uh, a lawyer that I know in town took me to lunch and was extolling the virtues of their firm's cannabis practice. And I heard him out. And then I got back to my office and there was an email waiting for me that had an attachment, which was their firm's promotional material about their cannabis practice and I looked at it and I you know printed it out and flipped it over front page to back page and uh, it was two middle-aged white lawyers and so I emailed my friend and said you know I appreciate the material thanks for lunch appreciate the material you sent me are there any women on the team Mm -hmm. and you know about an hour later he sent me back a list of (laughs) <laughs> of women that were purportedly on the team. And so, you know, I, sure. I, I would hope that firms who want to do work with Harvest and with me in particular um, do recognize that I value that and, and it's important to me. I'm, I'm never going to mm-hmm. put Harvest's interest in jeopardy for the sake of diversity, but I'm also not one of those people that believes that, that there isn't probably a woman or a diverse lawyer out there who can do the job as well as mm-hmm. anybody else. That makes sense. Uh, so let's go back a little bit. It, at what point did you think, you know what, I want to be a lawyer? <laughs> um, I really never had that thought. Um, <laughs> I just so, accidentally got there. <laughs> <laughs> I told you, it's sort of like Forrest Gump. But um, no, I, I grew up in a very small town outside of Park City, Utah. I never, but by the time I got to college, I had never met a lawyer. I certainly had not met a, a woman lawyer. And it was in my mass communications law class that my professor said to me, Have you ever thought about becoming a lawyer? And I looked at him and I, I was like, No, I haven't. <laughs> um, and so that was kind of the first time that I ever said to myself, You know, maybe I should think about that. Uh, my college boyfriend at the time was like, yeah, yeah, you should, you should look into that. Um, so I did obviously go to law school and, and mm-hmm. have had what I would consider to be an enjoyable career. And so, but I, I wasn't one of those people that came out of the womb knowing that I wanted yeah. to be a lawyer. Yeah. That just wasn't my experience. I didn't know what, I didn't know what it meant to be a lawyer. Sure. Yeah. A lot of us get steered that direction at some mm-hmm. point. Somebody sees something in you saying, you know what, you, this, you should maybe consider this. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in fact, it was between undergrad and law school, I moved from Utah to Arizona. And I, for a period of time, I did door-to-door business-to-business sales for a large payroll company called ADP. Hmm. And then I stopped doing that and went to work as a temp. And they would put me, they, I went to several different law firms and that was really the first time. So that, that short period between Mm. undergrad and law school, when I was taking the LSAT that I actually stepped foot in a law firm. So I was, you know, I guess 19 years old at the time, 20 years old, um, when I first stepped foot in a law firm and I would go in as a temp and, you know, obviously wanted to demonstrate my skill set. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, I definitely got rave reviews while I was doing my temp, my temp work at these various law firms. Um, cause I'd never been in one before. That's interesting. <laughs> uh, so what's your favorite thing to do to unwind? 
Oh, gosh. Um, Pre-pandemic, it would have been, I love to attend sporting events. I'm a, Mm. a, you know, an avid basketball fan. I particularly love women's basketball, the WNBA. My kids love it. Um, My husband loves basketball. So, you know, I I always enjoyed going to football games or be it college or professional, didn't really matter. I Mm. really enjoy that. Um, I'm a big foodie. So I, I try to find, again, pre-pandemic, right. <laughs> I loved to identify a new restaurant that would open up and I had to be one of the first people to try it mm. <laughs> so that I could critique it, um, be my own Hopefully little Hopefully we'll critic. get back there soon. You yes, know? yes. Yeah. I, I see a light finally at the end of that tunnel, but uh, we have to get there first. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, things like that. I, I spend a lot of time just hanging out with my kids. I love I love my family, and so it doesn't really matter what we're doing as sure. long as we're together. Yep. Do you play any musical instruments? Oh, no. No, no. <laughs> I do not. <laughs> if you had to choose one to oh. learn and play, what would it be? Oh, boy. Um, wow, that is really an interesting question. You know, I, I guess, and I know it's probably a lame answer, but I, I wish I played the piano. Mm-hmm. I, I started to take lessons as a child and just found it too frustrating. So I wish I had stuck with that. And I always tell my kids this, that story when they're wanting to drop out of something. <laughs> but, uh, you know, yeah. and so I watch people play it and I'm like, oh, I wish I, I wish I had that kind of talent. Any instrument, yeah. really. I understand that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's one thing you've learned about yourself during the COVID crisis? Oh, gosh. Um, one thing I've learned about myself, I've learned a lot of things. But, you know, I I never had worked from home before. And now mm-hmm. I've been at home since March 6th, I think, was my last day in the office. I went in for about three hours for our annual shareholder meeting a few months ago. But I, I actually think that I never thought that I would love working at home as much as I do. And so that, that really surprised me. Um, you know, with my husband's job pre-pandemic, I mean, it's Friday. Our Friday night would have been spent at some charity gathering at a table of 10 or 12 people with yeah. a, you know, a piece of rubber chicken in front of us. Um, <laughs> You know, and I loved, I loved that, but I, I really feel like we, I felt like I was on a hamster wheel and this really has given me the time to get off the hamster wheel, sort of reevaluate and reassess what's really important. And so mm. I do feel like at least our family has been benefited by this, by just being able to take a collective breath because you know, when you're in it and then you look backwards and you say, oh my gosh, how are we doing all of that? Um, sure. Yeah. When you're in the thick of it, it's kind of like being put into a pot of water and the heat being turned up. You just don't really realize that it's starting to boil. So I'm actually as sad Hmm. as I am for the, you know, quarter of a million Americans who have died. And I, I find that horrific and unacceptable. Um, it has been a, you know, a, a nice reflection time and quality time with my family. So, yeah, it seems like that's been the case for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just been a, there has been a silver lining to be yeah. forced to be at home <laughs> and that a lot of people have been forced to sort of slow down and kind of take, take, uh, you know, take a look at what they have around them. Yeah. Well, and you know, we've lived in our house for seven and a half years. And while we were, you know, while we've been staying at home, we actually figured out how two like two different light features work in our house. Like (laughs) there were these lights that we have in some uh, built in bookshelves and they have these lights above them. We never could figure out how to turn them on. And then one day I was just kind of fumbling around and (laughs) miraculously they turned on. So there you go. There is a light. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we need to wrap up, but uh, Nicole, it's been really fun to have you on. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, Stay safe. And it was really nice to talk to you and your listeners. Thanks again to Nicole Stanton for taking time away from her busy schedule to join us on Lawyerly. And thanks to Edipose for being our show sponsor.
Join us again next time on the Lawyerly Podcast. As always, if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us get the word out. Production services for today's episode are by Four Hours of Sleep. And the music for the show is by Rhythmic Revival. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Kennedy.